0: This is the Trails Church podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel, in community, and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. On September the 9th, 2018, we gathered for the very first time as the Trails Church It was in this very room that we read Scripture and had it preached, sang and prayed, shared the Lord's Supper, and recited together our church covenant as God, in His great grace, established a brand new body of believers. That day was the answer to so many prayers, and these past five years have continued to see the kindness of God poured out over us. I want you to know that I am deeply grateful to be a part of this church family, and I'm thankful that Jamie and I get to raise our family here with you, and uh, incredibly grateful to serve as your pastor, a church that loves Christ and treasures his word and is committed to one another with such devotion. I pray that as we turn the page to the next chapter in our story that God would continue to go before us. And guide us with his presence. We said from the start that the Trails Church would exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would do that through the power of the gospel in the context of community and sent together on mission. And that remains the heartbeat of our church now, five years later. We've sought to fulfill that mission in everything we do, from the way that we approach corporate worship to how we teach the next generation, from planting community groups to enjoying church-wide picnics, from serving on various ministry teams to the shared sacrificial gift of giving together. The chief end of the church is to glorify God by making disciples. The way that we ensure that happens is by contending together together Cultivating a church where the gospel is the center of everything we do, the center of our life together, and for us to together experience the joy of the gospel advancing in and also through us. The gospel must be the blazing center of the local church. So my prayer is whether this is your first Sunday or your 260th consecutive Sunday, That's how many Sundays we've now gathered. That each of us would leave this place this morning with renewed passion to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel, in community, and on mission. An anniversary is a wonderful opportunity to remind one another of why we exist and what it is we're called to do. And so on this five-year anniversary, let's ask corporately, And personally, am I experiencing the joy of gospel advancement? Am I experiencing the joy of gospel advancement? As we turn the page on another year, we also turn the page to a new book of the Bible to explore. Today, we begin the book of Acts, perhaps the most thrilling, mission-clarifying, life-transforming book in Scripture. Or at least as much so as the other 65 books. Acts is the source book of the early church showing the spread of Christianity. And it's filled with remarkable scenes that if we did not have the book of Acts and they weren't recorded here, we wouldn't have them at all. Scenes like fire falling from heaven as the Holy Spirit fills the early believers thousands of people coming to faith in Christ as the preaching of the gospel unfolds in the streets of Jerusalem. A man who had been born lame from birth who meets the apostles and leaves walking and leaping and praising God is how I learned that as a kid. And that's just in the first three chapters. There are 29 chapters, 28 chapters in full. Um, You can do the math later on your own. John Calvin called this a vast treasure. Martin Lloyd-Jones dubbed it the most lyrical of books. And then he wrote, live in that book, I exhort you. It is a tonic, the greatest tonic I know in the realm of the Spirit. It was referred to as a friend of mine as a renewal document for all times. My prayer is that we would make this book a vast treasure of our own. We would come to prize the book of Acts like never before. That we would live in this story and its truth and narrative would in fact shape the story of our lives. And that God might renew our time through this renewal document for all times. The book of Acts tells the story of the continuing work of Christ. Following Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension... The Father's plan is continued through the Son as the Spirit empowers the people of God for gospel ministry. From the opening verses of the book of Acts, we're met with some programmatic themes that will help shape the entire book that we'll be working through. As we set our course today, we'll highlight three of those. Here they are. First, the certainty of Christ's continuing work. Second, the promise of the Holy Spirit, and third, the advancement of the gospel. Let me invite you, if you would, to stand to your feet as we read together from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. This is God's holy and inerrant word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The first discovery we make addresses the certainty of Christ's continuing work, verses 1 to 3. There are three people mentioned in the first verse, Theophilus, Luke, and Jesus. We'll take them in order, um, in the order they're introduced, providing some cordial introductions. The first person we meet is a man called Theophilus, who is the intended recipient of this book. There is little information on who Theophilus was. Perhaps you might even think that he has one of the awfulest names in Scripture. But his name means loved by God. As the dad jokes are in rare form today. Loved by God is what his name means. Theophilus is thought to have been a believer in Jesus, most likely a man of great wealth, possibly even the patron who funded the work of research and reporting that Luke has committed himself to. Next, our attention goes to the person who identifies himself in the first person, Luke. Luke is the author of Acts, writing around the year A.D. 62, He was a Gentile by race, a doctor by profession, and converted conceivably through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Luke is a historian. He's a theologian, yet above all, I want us to think of him as an evangelist. An evangelist. Luke's ambition for picking up his pen is to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We learn from the opening statement of Acts That this is not the beginning of a new story, rather the continuation of an ongoing one. That phrase in the first book, which opens this book, calls our attention back to a previous one. Um, In scholarly circles, the books of of Luke and Acts are often stitched together even by a hyphenated name. They're referred to as Luke-Acts. And they do that to show this is a continuation of one idea, one ongoing storyline. So we've met Theophilus, we've met Luke, and that leads us to the final person we meet in verse 1, the man who truly needs no introduction, Jesus Christ. With the mention of Jesus' name, Luke begins with his eyes fixed on Christ. What that does is introduce this book not so much as a work of the apostles, or merely the work of the Holy Spirit, but the continued work of the risen and enthroned Jesus. Since Luke points his reader back to his first volume, I want you to turn your attention there with me as well to hear how he begins the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bible open, just flip to the left a little bit, to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. What we'll see here is, how he starts this book so that we have a bearing on why he works his way through the the book of Luke into the book of Acts. He writes, Luke chapter one, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also Having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And here's his driving purpose that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke wants the gospel to be clear. He wants Theophilus and other disciples throughout time and you and me to be rooted and planted in the gospel. For us not to lose the gospel. That's what he's doing in Luke. He's focusing that his readers would have certainty concerning the person and work of Jesus. Now, keep that purpose in mind and let your eyes drift now over Acts chapter 1 in these opening verses. Because here we read in this introduction that Luke wants Theophilus, he's mentioned again, and other disciples throughout time, and you and me today to have certainty about the continuing work of Jesus. He's encouraging Christians, reminding us the story isn't over. And so he's sure to include details in verse 3, how Jesus presented himself alive after he had died, and then he appeared to various groups of people during a 40-day period while he taught them about the kingdom of God. I think the best way to think about Luke and Acts is like this. Luke details the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Acts tells the continuation of Jesus' ministry. That's what that word began in verse 1 is doing. Luke wants us to know for certain who Christ is, all that Christ has done, and what Christ is doing even now in the lives of his readers. So Christ has died, Luke wants us to know. Your sins are forgiven. Christ is risen, he writes, so let doubts be displaced. In the book of Acts, he goes on to describe the ascension of Christ. Christ has ascended, so let your faith flourish. Christ will come again, he writes, so let your hope spring eternal. What Christ has begun, he is sure to complete. And as we pause for just a moment, I want to remind each of us who are in Christ of the certainty of his continued work in your life. The certainty of Christ's continued work in your life. Jesus did not save you in order to desert you in the middle of your sorrows and circumstance. Jesus didn't shed his blood for you so that your sins would outrun the mercy and grace he's given you as a child of God. He is with you, whether you see it right now or not. He's at work in you and all around you. He wants you to be certain of that. This is the kind of certainty that Paul writes with in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, he, Christ, who began this good work in you, will see it to completion. He's certain that in this world where nothing is certain of the one thing that is sure salvation, and the work of Jesus Christ. So just by way of reminder, Christian, Christ died for you. Let your sins be buried under his grace. Christ is risen for you. Let your doubts be displaced. Christ ascended. Let your faith flourish. Christ will come again. Let your hope spring eternal. Search the book of Acts this week. And just marvel at the continuing work of Christ. The second discovery we make is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 introduces the first movement within the story of Acts. The disciples are in the presence of the resurrected Christ. Jesus was staying with them. You'll notice there's an asterisk by that if you have a copy of the English Standard Version of the Bible. Because that word staying in Greek also carries with it the idea of eating. So as Jesus shares a meal with his closest friends, he instructs them to do two specific things. Stay and wait. In verse 4, they are to stay. Stay in Jerusalem, to not leave. Uh, He wants them to remain together, to be close to the action. The most important thing, however, I think in verse 4, is not so much the location, but who it is that commands them to stay. This command comes from the one who will continue to command the advance of the gospel with every single move, Jesus Christ himself. They're also told in verse 4 to wait. They are specifically told to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is going to happen not many days from now. Verse 5 contains a quote from John the Baptist that is meant to pull our attention back to this unforgettable scene recorded in the Gospel of Luke. As people were trying to figure out if John the Baptist was the Christ who would bring God's salvation, in Luke chapter 3 verse 16, the Baptist replies, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John is pointing to Jesus and to a true and better baptism that was to come. We see here that this promise will be fulfilled not many days from now. And you and I will spend more time on this also not many days from now in a few weeks. I told you they're in rare form today. Much to the demise of my kids, yeah. Okay, for now, what I want you to notice that what Luke said in his first book, he now builds upon in his second. At the baptism of Jesus, we find a Trinitarian passage. As John the Baptist brings the Son up out of the Jordan River, the Spirit descends in the likeness of a dove as the Father's voice rings out through the countryside. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Son The Spirit, the Father, all mentioned in this verse. And did you see how in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, how each person of the Trinity is mentioned? Right here at the very beginning of the story. The Son reminds the disciples about the promise of the Father in the coming baptism of the Spirit. The Son, the Father, the Spirit. It's no surprise that all the members of the one true God, the Trinity, are operating in the mission of the church. Patrick Schreiner commented, one can't speak about the Spirit, according to Acts, without putting Him in the same frame as the risen Christ. One can't speak about Christ without speaking of the Father's plan. One can't speak about the witness of the apostles without relating it to the empowering of the Spirit. This book is fundamentally about the mission of the triune God. And that is what we will find page after page, the triune God on mission to rescue and redeem, to bring people to salvation through people who have received his salvation all the way to the ends of the earth. For now, Jesus instructs his followers, stay and wait. It's no accident that the disciples were instructed to wait on the baptism of the Spirit They couldn't go about the work of this mission in their own might, but needed to be filled with the Spirit of God to see it come to pass. They couldn't trust in the power of their own persuasion to see people converted and come to faith in Christ. No, they would need the power of the Holy Spirit, strengthening, bringing life to the proclamation of the gospel. And so they waited they waited on the one who long ago said in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. As I thought about the dependence we have on the Spirit of God, I just held this text up to my own life this week and said, Matt, are you aware of how dependent you are on the Spirit of God? And I think the answer was no. I don't think so. But I want to just ask you the same question. Are you aware, Christian, of how dependent you are on the Spirit of God? If the answer is no, let's together just say, Lord, help us. Teach us. Instruct us of how dependent we truly are. And let's pray together that the Trails Church would continue to be a Spirit-wrought, Spirit-filled, Spirit-empowered, Spirit-led, Spirit-dependent people and everything that God's called us to. The final discovery we make which shapes the book of Acts is the advancement of the gospel in verses 6 to 8. Verse 6 contains a question from the disciples to which Jesus gives a two-part answer. They ask him if the time has come for him to restore the kingdom to Israel. They're wondering about the political and social and geographic realities that the kingdom of God will affect. And Jesus doesn't scold them for asking this question. I want you to notice that. Instead, he tells them it's not for them to know the times or seasons that the Lord has fixed for things by his own authority. So as a quick aside to dads, Acts chapter 1 verse 7 is a great verse for you to memorize. Whenever your kids might ask you, how much longer till we're home? Or when can we go do this? When can we go do that? You simply smile, reply, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, I've ripped that totally out of context. Like, you can't actually say that, but, but you should. I do think it's funny. Jesus knows that his disciples don't understand yet that the kingdom of God is not bound by a line of a map of the Middle East. The kingdom of God is greater than one ethnic group of people. The kingdom of God is not a political reality, but a spiritual one. One that will grow sort of like a mustard seed. The smallest of all the seeds is planted. Then over time, slowly and steadily will grow till it becomes the largest of all the trees so that the nations of the earth could come and find refuge and home in the branches of the salvation of God. That's the first part of Jesus' answer. The second part holds the summary statement for the entire book of Acts. Luke is so kind to include for us a table of contents for the whole book of Acts right here in in chapter 1, verse 8. If you're not careful, uh, you'll miss it. This is what he writes. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is his table of contents. Let me explain. Jerusalem is the place where Christ was tried, crucified, and eventually died. It's also the very place where his name would soon be proclaimed and believed in by many. So what Luke is going to do is focus his attention in chapters 1 to 7 on Jerusalem, on the gospel advancing throughout the city of Jerusalem. Then as we reach chapters 8 to 11, Judea and Samaria come into view. These are neighboring nations to Israel, places they tried to avoid for various reasons, yet the disciples are called to take the good news of Jesus to these people with the same compassion that Christ brought them the good news of salvation. We'll find that in chapters 8 to 11. And finally, we see that the name of Jesus will be taken by these witnesses to the ends of the earth. And that's what Luke has in mind in chapters 12 to 28. The answer to why the disciples are being sent is answer, really, I think, points all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, where God tells Abraham that through your seed, I will bless the nations of the earth. We know that's through the person and work of Jesus. But also, if you fast forward to the book of Isaiah, this is very important in light of this passage, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, this is what God tells his people, I will make you as a light for the nations. That my salvation might reach to the end of the earth. And there you have God disclosing his heart for every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. However, as we reach the end of the book of Acts, we'll see that even though the gospel has reached places far and wide, it will not have technically reached the ends of the earth. They go much much beyond uh, the, the places in the Bible. And there's a reason for that. It was said that this is the one book that has no proper close because it waits for new chapters to be added so fast and so far as the people of God share the good news of salvation through Jesus. That doesn't mean that someone will come along and say, like, look, I wrote Acts chapter 29. That's not what we're talking about. But what we find here in the um, untidiness of the end of Luke's orderly account Is a spurring on to the people of God throughout all the ages to continue to advance the gospel all around the world, even to the ends of the earth. Now, I want you to understand, as we set out to make our course here, that the ends of the earth is a a strange concept for us to understand. Because when I think about the ends of the earth, I think about places far from Dallas-Fort Worth. I chalk this up to my being a native Texan or just latent pride in my heart. But when I think about the entirety of the world and what is the very center of it, I think of the great nation of Texas. <laughs> that is the center of the world. It's at least the center of our world. And of all of Texas, the greatest place is North Texas, right? And then you'll fill in your city. But what's really in my mind is at DFW Airport, when you're standing there and you see these, these flight maps that go kind of all over from Dallas-Fort Worth, to airports scattered around the world, I think, well, those must be the ends of the earth. But that's not how Luke writes. That is so far from the understanding of these early followers of Christ. Uh, And so when we think about the ends of the earth, we do want to consider places that have no access to the gospel, places with very little access to the gospel, unreached people groups, absolutely. But I want you to understand that from Luke's perspective, right now we sit in the ends of the earth, Collin County, Texas, in Luke's eyes, is the ends of the earth. We are far from his home. And what he he envisions is the good news of the gospel spreading and taking root so that churches like the trails pop up all over the world to the ends of the earth. And like these first disciples, we are called to be witnesses right here to plant seeds in the field that God has placed us in. The word witnesses in verse 8 is no small matter. The word witness is a key term in Acts for people who have experienced Jesus and saw him in his resurrected state. That experience of seeing the risen Christ qualifies them to personally testify, to be a witness to what they had seen of the risen Christ. Now, you and I have not seen Jesus with our eyes physically. But when the Holy Spirit opened our understanding, opened our hearts to believe in Jesus, we have seen him with the eyes of faith. And so now what we are called to do, like these early disciples, is to continue in the tradition of being witnesses to everything that we've seen. And I just want to tell you, if you are our friend, but you've not yet become a Christian, we've come to witness to you unapologetically, because at the heart of the good news of Jesus is that only by faith in him can we be rescued from our sin and brought into new life through Christ. So let me just clearly explain to you what this message is that we want to witness and testify to you. The Bible teaches that there is one God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, one God who created all things out of nothing. And as the crown of all creation created man and woman for relationship with Him. But our first parents fell from God's grace when they chose to trust in their own wisdom rather than in the wisdom of God. Trusting the word of the culture rather than in the word of God. And there they fell from grace and birthed the fall of all mankind. So now you and I are not born in relationship with God but separated by Him because we are sinners in need of a Savior. There's no way we can obey the rules enough or or just try to uh, not break the wrong rules and somehow try to earn God's favor. The only way to be rescued is by faith alone in Christ alone. And so God, in the fullness of time, sent his one and only son to live a perfect life, to die the perfect death in the place of sinners so that you and I might respond to Christ, to the message of the kingdom of God. And by placing our faith in him, not in anything that we've done, We're passed from death to life because of the work of Christ, because of the work of the Spirit making us alive, calling us to life in Christ. And so I don't know how you walked in this room this morning, but you can leave with your life completely transformed by the person and work of Jesus. It doesn't matter what you did this week or what you did 20 years ago or what you did this weekend. Your sin can be forgiven by Christ. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to him. Come to him. He will clean you. He will restore you. He will give you a new heart full of love for him. He'll transform everything. I I pray that you will hear the good news of the gospel with new ears this morning. Well, as we celebrate this this mark of five years, I I cannot believe that it's gone by so fast. Um, It seems in so many ways we've just begun. I was just reflecting this week on the faithfulness and kindness of the Lord toward us. and There is so much to be thankful for. I see a church sustained by the gospel of Jesus. Nourished by the word of God. Filled with the spirit of God. And fumbling forward together on mission. I see servant-hearted leaders everywhere I look. People committed to Christ and to his church to see the body of Christ built up and to see the gospel advance here in our community and by God's grace to the end of the world. We're not there yet. We're just five years old. And we're not doing it perfectly. We never will. But by God's grace, let's continue at it and see what he might do through a group of people who are certain of Christ's continued work in our lives, the people who are filled and empowered with the spirit of God and who are living our lives to see the advancement of the gospel. All of this because of the continuing work of Christ in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and for this day where we celebrate your faithfulness to us as your people. Thank you for the book of Acts that instructs us, that leads us on. I pray that we would treasure this book, that we would live in it, and allow it to change and uproot things in our lives that need to be rearranged. And Lord, that we would be renewed as we study this document of renewal. I ask all of this in the power of the Spirit, for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.